0: Well, good morning. morning. It is good to see all of you here. Thank you for coming, being a part of our worship services here at Ivy Creek this morning. And I just want to add um, my thoughts to those which uh, Ted has already expressed. I want to wish uh, all of you out there a very, very happy Mother's Day. And I'm grateful my mom is here in the service this morning. I can kind of see her and give her a wink. And I'm glad that she is here. And uh, she has truly been a blessing to my life and the life of my family. And uh, I want to just wish her a happy Mother's Day, but I want to wish all of the rest of you a happy Mother's Day as well. You know, in, in, in the course of my life, uh, and particularly my ministry, I have been blessed by so many who have invested in me and encouraged me and have been so kind to me. Uh, I've had the opportunity with, with Caroline. We've, we've lived in Tennessee. We've lived in Texas. We've lived in Tennessee again. I think they're done with me now up there. They kicked me out the last time. But, you know, in, in those churches when we were not living right near our families, uh, there I can think of so many faces of, of women who invested in me and, and encouraged me and were blessings to me. And so I just want to give that to you as well because many of you are here and you can think of that and you may not have the opportunity to be able to say thank you and to, to wish your own mother a, a happy Mother's Day because of whatever reasons it may be. But I hope that you'll take the opportunity today to think of some of those who have invested in your lives uh, and, and have done such wonderful things for you. I think of so many of you who are in this room who have invested in the life of my own children. Uh, just as Dave mentioned when he baptized his daughter earlier, so many of you have made an impact. And I just want to want you to know that on a day like today, you are not forgotten and you are well thought of and that the, the Lord Jesus is, is pleased with the investment that you make in those lives, and I'm just grateful to you as your pastor for all of the investment that you make in the lives of not only your own biological children, but also all the rest of the children of this church. So thank you very much, and happy Mother's Day to all of you. Um, you know, um, the Bible says, charm is deceit, and beauty is passing. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. And so I, I, want, I want to just uh, extend that, that praise to all of you this morning as well. Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, Please take them and turn with me once again to the book of Acts and to chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We're going to continue the new sermon series that we began a couple of weeks ago. And as we do, let me just remind you of the key verse that we find there in chapter 1, verse 8. Now, I, last week I challenged you uh, to, to start memorizing that verse, and some of you have already done that. In fact, I was looking, I was looking for some marijuana books the other night so I could sign off on it. Uh, because I had so many who would come up and told me, you know, hey, I've got that verse memorized. And so uh, Acts 1 verse 8 is a great verse to memorize. I encourage you to do that. Uh, here's what Jesus says in that verse, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witnesses to me, or you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that verse is so important because it gives us really an outline of the entire book of Acts. It tells us exactly what Luke is going to tell us and take all of the 28 chapters of the book to tell, tell everything about what happens. We'll follow the outline of that verse. But even more importantly, though, it, it gives us some theological underpinnings of what the mission of the church is. It tells us what we who are believers and who are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ are to be doing. We are to be witnesses to Jesus Christ. We are, to, we are to tell, we are to use our mouths to tell others about the death and the burial and the resurrection and the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to be witnesses to him. Now, it also tells us in that verse the extent that we ought to go or where we need to go. We are to go to the ends of the earth. There's no, there's no crevice, there's no crack, there's no far country to which we do not go. We want to carry the good news of the gospel to the farthest reaches Of the earth. Jesus says that is what will happen. Well, we may say, well, how are we going to do that? By what? What's the engine that's going to power us? Well, the power of the Holy Spirit will be what powers us to do that. That will be our our divine engine that allows us to be able to do the very thing that Christ commanded us to do. And so you'll know that that verse is so important because it really gives us all of our marching orders and tells us how we're to do it and where we're to go. And then also back there in chapter 1, Jesus had said to his disciples, look, I want you to go to Jerusalem, and I want you to wait there, and I want you to pray and be waiting for the coming of that Holy Spirit because when he comes, I'm going to baptize you in it. And so that's what they were doing. For the previous 10 days from the time that Jesus had raised from the dead till the time when he ascended back to the Father. They spent 10 days, and we looked at this last week, they spent those time in prayer, and they were studying the Scriptures together, and they were learning about all the things that had been revealed about Christ in the Old Testament. So there they were, waiting on that day to come, and suddenly we see, beginning in chapter 2, that it finally arrived. And so with that, let's begin reading it together. I'm going to read all 41 verses of our text this morning because unapologetically, I still tell you that if nothing else happens here today, the reading of God's word will be done and the power of God, unleashed through His word, I believe has the power and the authority to change lives. And so together we are going to read that beginning in verse 1. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that, that we hear each in our own language? In which we were born, Parthians and Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia and Egypt, and the parts of Libya, adjoining uh, joining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others, mocking, said, They are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will... Pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on on my men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit. In those days, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, and you yourselves also know him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and crucified and put to death, whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life, and you will make full the joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David that he is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to his flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on the throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ that his soul was not left in Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus has raised up of which we are all witnesses. God has raised him up, of which we are all witnesses. And therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the, disciples, of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received the word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Brothers and sisters, this, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we do thank you for this day, and we thank you for this time in which we have to be able to open our scriptures and be able to read them and and then open our hearts and let you speak to us through them. And I pray that that is exactly what will happen today, that Jesus will be exalted, that your Holy Spirit will come and convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment to come, and that your will would be done in our lives and in this service. This is my prayer. I pray it in Christ's name. This passage naturally falls, in my belief, into three sections, and I believe all three of them uh, reveal to us, as I have entitled today's sermon, the Pentecostal power that we are witness to. It is a it is an explanation of the importance and an emphasizing of the importance of the day of Pentecost. And the first section comes there in verses 1 through 13. And what I want you to see there is the extraordinary events of Pentecost. That's the first point that I've given you on your outline. The extraordinary events. Pentecost. I should point out that the word Pentecost is actually in Greek. It means 50. And, And so the reason that it's called Pentecost is because it occurs 50 days after Passover. It is one of the feasts that in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, God set out. It was called the Feast of Weeks there. And it was actually a feast that was set up as a pilgrimage feast where people would come into Jerusalem just as they had at Passover. They would come back to Jerusalem during the Feast of Weeks in order to sacrifice there, but also to bring in the first fruits of the harvest. It was to celebrate the harvest that God had provided his people. And this became known later in the Greek language. We see that as Pentecost because it occurred 50 days after Passover. And, and many would say that there were more people in the city of Jerusalem during Pentecost than, than there were during Passover because it was later in the year and the weather was better and people could travel more easily. And so we, we have every reason to believe that Jerusalem was packed with people from all over the area. And what we begin to realize is that the 120 believers that Luke had told us about in chapter 1 who had gathered together... well to pray and, and await the coming of the Holy Spirit. Well, they, they suddenly were, were visited by that Holy Spirit in, in what is no less an unusual and surprising way. The Spirit became, came upon those who were gathered together, and His presence was signaled in three ways. It was signaled by, by sound, it was signaled by sight, and it was signaled by speech. Notice what we read there in verse 2. And suddenly, Luke writes, there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now, what I find interesting is the text doesn't say that it was filled with wind, but that it was filled with the sound of wind, and, and that that sound of, was the sound of, of a blowing, and it was something that, that would have alerted everybody there to the fact that something big was happening. I like what Derek Thomas has said. He said that the, that the sound was a hint that a new creation was beginning and that the old was giving, away, giving way to the new and that the breath of God was blowing across them. Many have noted the parallel and the similarity between what we read here in Acts 2 and also what we read in Ezekiel chapter 37. You remember the, the, the vision given to the prophet Ezekiel as he looked out across this valley of dry bones and, and God told him, says, listen, pray and, and, and pray for, that, for the wind to blow from the north and the south and the east and the west and pray that it blows across those dry bones. And it's exactly what happened. He saw this vision of God blowing, his, his breath blowing across those bones and, and they, those corpses then began to reassemble and they rose up and they became a mighty army. Many have said that's exactly in many respects what occurs here in Acts chapter 2. But I want you to notice it wasn't just the sound of wind. It was also the sight that we see there in verse 3. There appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. Now, fire is a symbol in the Old Testament of the presence of God. You remember Moses encountered the presence of God at the burning bush. You remember that the children of Israel, they followed God while they were in in the the wilderness because he was a a pillar of fire and smoke both day and night so that they would know where he was going. It represented the the presence of God. Well, notice here that it was these divided tongues of fire that came down and rested upon all 120 of those in individual tongue-like flames. And that fire indicated that each one of them would be filled with the presence of God. And in fact, that these individual flames of fire look like tongues, I think is appropriate considering the next extraordinary event that you come across because not only was the Holy Spirit's arrival accompanied by, by sound and by sight, but also by speech, according to verse four. Luke tells us that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in one another, in, in speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, let me point out that the context of what we read here in Acts chapter 2, tells us that this speaking in tongues was not a manifestation of them speaking in some unintelligible heavenly language. That's not what was happening here. In fact, rather, the extraordinary nature of this sign was that they began speaking in genuine, legitimate, earthly languages But it was what the miraculous side of it was that none of them had ever learned those languages before. They didn't know them. They didn't speak in them. They they had no idea, and yet suddenly they were able to speak in foreign languages to all of these foreigners who were in the city of Jerusalem. As I mentioned earlier, there in verse 5, the streets were filled, Luke says, from every nation under heaven, people who had come to Jerusalem for the celebration of this feast. And then he goes on in verses 9 through 11. I won't read it for you again, but he lists all the different areas. And when you read those, you realize that they came from Europe. They came from the Arab nations around them, all the way down from northern Africa. They all had arrived. All the known world had arrived in Jerusalem. And they were walking the streets. And these are the ones who then tell us in verse 11, we can't believe what's happening here because we hear all of these Galileans speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. In other words, when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them, these disciples took to the streets to declare to every nation under heaven the wonderful works of God. And the real interesting thing is is they were Galileans. Now, I have to just kind of pause here for a second. When I went in the Navy, and then I was stationed overseas in Japan, you know, when, you, when you're stationed in a foreign country with a lot of folks that come from all different parts and regions and dialects of the United States, and you're there, you tend to can kind of figure out where somebody's from based upon what they, how they talk. Unsurprisingly, they figured out I was from the South pretty quick. It was the same with the Galileans. You could pick out a Galilean because the Galileans were from a regional area where their dialects sort of caused them to swallow their guttural sounds of their of their voices. So you could pick them out really quickly, just like just like someone from the Midwest can pick out someone from the South. And so what was and, and the Galileans were not known as the most educated people or the most eloquent people. They were kind of considered the the backwoods folks. The fact then that the Galileans are there. And they're out the ones that are on the street speaking in these languages that they had never known before was truly a miracle of God. And it got a lot of attention. Many have even noted how this happens in Acts chapter 2 is sort of a reversal of what you read in Genesis chapter 11. I'm not going to take the time to to ferret it all out for you, but I encourage you to go back and read Genesis 11 for yourself later and, and compare these two chapters, Acts 2, Genesis 11. Because in Genesis 11 you find that all the people of the world that God had created were still together in a huddled mass. In fact, God had given them the order to go out and subdue the earth and to to spread out all over the earth, but they refused to do it. They wanted to come together as a group because they felt more protected that way, and they all shared one language. And in fact, what they wanted to do was really boast about themselves, so they built this tower that would rise all the way to heaven, and God said, that's not going to do it. And so the Bible says that he confused their languages. In other words, they could no longer understand one another. And that was what forced them to spread out and do what he had told them to do. Many have pointed to Acts 2 as being a reversal of that. That Here you see people from all across the known world coming back to Jerusalem, and they're coming not to boast about themselves. They're coming to hear about the good news and the mighty works of God in their own language. Now, I'm going to let you... Kind of run the rest of that for yourself, but it's an awesome thing to consider how God does what he does. The point that I want you to know and the thing that I want to make sure that you recognize here is that these disciples who had been huddling together for the previous 10 days, they're no longer huddled together. When the Holy Spirit came, the centrifugal force of Him blowing into them slung them out into the streets. And when He did, they took to the streets, and then they were baptized, as they said in chapter 1, verse 5, in the Holy Spirit. They, the Holy Spirit had come upon them, as Jesus said that He would do, in chapter 1, verse 8, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, as chapter 2, verse 4 gives us that understanding. And here's what I love. As James Boyce has written, he says that what occurred here becomes indicative of what we see happen again and again in the New Testament. And that is whenever Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit, they immediately begin to testify forcefully and effectively of Jesus Christ. They begin to verbally witness to his death, his resurrection, and his exaltation. And therefore, let me point out to you that while there are those who wish to point to a Spirit-filled person as one who speaks In unintelligible tongues and perform miracles, what I want you to know is that the primary way that the Bible reveals that a person is spirit filled is whether or not he or she testifies to Jesus Christ and whether God blesses that testimony with the conversion of men and women. Here in Acts chapter 2, what we see is the extraordinary events that occurred as the result of the coming of the Holy Spirit and these disciples, they began to testify to Jesus in foreign languages that they had never learned before, and the people were amazed by what they heard. But then you can imagine there are those who are there who see things and they hear things and they don't understand what it is they see and hear. They were speaking in languages they didn't know, and they're watching what goes on, and they're going, these guys got to be drunk. Lord goodness, they got up first thing this morning and started drinking. That's got to be the explanation of why they're acting and doing the things that they're doing then in verse 14, Peter stands up and he's flanked by the other 11 disciples. He says this, he says, Men of Judea and all of you who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose. It is only the third, it's only nine o'clock in the morning, he says. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then from here, Peter launched. Peter, who was the fisherman, Peter, who had made his life out on the Sea of Galilee, Peter becomes a preacher right here. Now, this gets me excited. Y'all hang on. Beginning in verse 14 and working your way down through verse 36, what I want you to see. We've already seen now that we've seen these extraordinary events of Pentecost. Here, Peter provides us with the expository explanation of Pentecost. Do you like that one? That's good, isn't it? That's the expository explanation of Pentecost. Now, I certainly hope that none of you will take What I'm about to say right here is being self-serving because it's absolutely not intended to be. Nevertheless, I believe that I would be negligent if I did not point out to you that with all the folks who were in Jerusalem having observed all of these extraordinary events that had occurred and these people who were offering these ridiculous if not slanderous explanations for what they could not understand, I want you to know what Peter, when he stood up in front of all of those people, notice what he did not do. Peter didn't call John up to come share a personal testimony about what it was like to hear the sound of a rushing mighty wind. Nor did he call James up to explain his perspective on the flaming tongues of fire that had rested upon him and the others. He didn't didn't call Andrew up to ask him what it was like to be able to speak in a language that he had never known before. And as exciting and as, as instructive and helpful as all of that would have been, That's not what occurred. You see, when Peter stood up, it became an occasion not for personal testimonies. It became the occasion for preaching the Word of God. Freshly empowered by the Holy Spirit, Peter became a preacher that day. And when he preached, he did what every good and every obedient preacher should do. He pointed people to the Scriptures, and then he set out to explain what he read and then apply it to their lives. Brothers and sisters, let me just say to you, there is no substitute for the expositional preaching of God's Word. And the fact that right here, on the day of Pentecost, when the power of the Holy Spirit set the church of the Lord Jesus Christ aflame, the very first corporate activity that we witness is a sermon being preached. And What a sermon it is. Peter begins by quoting from the prophet Joel there in in, in Joel chapter 2, verses 21 through 32. I won't read it for you again. Let me just explain it this way. In Joel's prophecy, he describes all that will happen when God pours out his spirit on all flesh. There's going to be signs and wonders and all of these things that are going to accompany that event when God pours his spirit out. And Peter then is led by the spirit to understand Joel's prophecy as having been fulfilled as the day of Pentecost when the Spirit came. In effect, you could summarize Peter's sermon this way. He says, guys, look around you at all that's happened. This is that that Joel said was going to come. That's the effect of the sermon. What, What Joel said would happen has happened here. And the Spirit that God was going to pour out is the Holy Spirit that now rests in each one of us. And so he takes all the sounds and all the sights and all the speech that occurred that day, and he applies it as to what Joel had said would occur. Then Peter goes to the next section. He goes to Psalm chapter 16, verses 8 through 11, and he quotes them as well. And although this psalm was written by David and contains details that certainly applied to David himself, what becomes evident is that the final verses of Psalm 16 could not have applied to David. Specifically, look at verse 27. Verse 27 is parallel to Psalm 16, verse 10. And there we read this, For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now, obviously, this verse is about the decay of a body that had been left in a tomb. And it says that that decay would not happen. And what that means is that David couldn't have been talking about himself when he wrote this. Because David did eventually die, and, and his body did eventually decay. In fact, Peter declares in verse 29, look, the patriarch David, he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So the question is, whom was David? who was David discussing? Who was he referring to here? Well, Peter answers that question by saying that David was obviously a prophet who was looking forward to when the Messiah would come. And that he would be God in the flesh, not a mere mortal whose body would decay. So therefore, he would not see destruction. In other words, the Messiah would die, but his body wouldn't be preserved and he would be raised incorruptible. And then Peter goes on to state it very clearly there in verses 32 and 33. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. And therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit he poured out this which you now see and hear. In other words, Peter says again, this that you see is that that David pointed to. He, he, is the, he is Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the one whose body did not decay. He rose from the dead, and you've got at least 500 witnesses in this town that could ver- verify that. So Peter declares to all who will listen that that which they had witnessed in Jerusalem that day was nothing less than the power of the Holy Spirit being poured out. So, so far, he's, he's gone through two passages, and so far we've had two expositions, but then there's a third one, and Peter goes on to recite what is the most often quoted or, or referenced Old Testament verse in the New Testament. In verses 34 through 35, Peter quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, and he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, Peter once again quotes David, who is himself quoting God, and God is speaking to someone, and when he speaks to someone, he's speaking to someone that David obviously realizes is greater than him because he calls him his Lord, and he says, look, when you you come sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, and Peter Peter says, look, who could that be? It certainly wasn't David. David. And then in verse 36, he says this. He says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, what I want you to see is that throughout this sermon, Peter has been building a case to explain why everything that had occurred that day in Pentecost was happening. He was trying to connect the dots from that which had been written in the Old Testament so that the people who were observing it real time could understand why it was important and how it was a fulfillment of prophecy. It was an explanation. It was an explanatory in its purpose. But I also want you to notice this. It was evangelistic in its purpose as well. In fact, the third point on your outline is this. We witnessed the evangelistic explosion that occurred in Pentecost the evangelistic explosion. See, once again, we see the fulfillment of Jesus' words in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Because Peter here is preaching with confidence and he is preaching with boldness. If you remember, it had only been a little over seven weeks before this point when Peter had been all too willing to cuss because he is associated with Jesus. People kept saying, I know that you're one of his disciples. Just seven weeks prior, and he was cursing here, though having been filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit having come upon him, he now preaches with boldness and lines himself firmly under the, under the head, Jesus Christ. And if you'll look back, you'll see exactly what Peter uh, referred to. I'm going to just let you do it on your own. But verse 22, he refers to his life Verse 23, Peter referred to his death. Verses 24 through 32, he talks about his resurrection. In verses 33 through 36, he talks about his exaltation. And then finally, we get to his salvation there in verses 37 through 39. But before we get there, listen to what Peter said again in verse 36. He looks at all these people, and it was obviously a large crowd that was gathered because we know from later there were 3,000 souls that were added to the, the church that day. So we don't know how many there were listening. Peter got there and he pointed his finger at every one of their faces and says, you crucified Christ. That's bold. That's bold. That's boldness from the Holy Spirit. You crucified him. Now, most scholars will say, but we have to understand when Peter did that, he was not referring to the people that actually pounded the nails into Jesus' hand. We know that that was Roman soldiers that did that. And we also know that the large majority of these people who had come from all over Europe and all over North Africa and around the the eastern regions of the Crescent area there in in Jerusalem, they they were not the ones who had been a part of the religious leaders who who had kind of forced the hands of the Romans to do what they did to Jesus. So how is it that Peter could point his finger in their face and say, you crucified the Christ? Well, the issue is just this. He could say that And say it rightly, because it was sin that took Jesus to the cross. Not his own personal sin, but the sin of those for whom he died. His his death was so that he might be able to make atonement for the sins of those to whom Peter was preaching that day. And let me say this to you. It wasn't just those to whom Peter pointed his finger that day that caused Christ to be crucified. It is your sin. And it is my sin that sent Jesus to the cross. He willingly left heaven's throne room with all of the accoutrements and all the blessings and all the glory that was his and came and humbled himself and became a man who died on Calvary's cross so that you and I might be able to experience forgiveness of sins. And consequently, when we see Jesus hanging there, we have to recognize it was my sin that placed him on that cross. I want you to know when Peter made that point to this group, notice what happens. The Holy Spirit comes in and does what he does and brings conviction on their hearts. Notice what they say in verse 37. Men and brethren, what shall we do? You have just presented a terrible case for us. We are the ones who are guilty that put him on that cross and we are the ones that killed him. What hope do we now have? Is there any possible way that it can turn into good news because everything you've told us to this point has been bad news? And I'm so glad that you asked that and I guarantee you Peter was too because he says in verse 38, yes, there is hope and it comes this way. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Peter responded by telling them, look, the first thing that you need to do is repent of your sins. I, Howard Marshall, he says this about the word repentance. He says it indicates a change of direction in a person's life. Rather than simply a mental change, of attitude or feeling or remorse. It it signifies actually turning away from that in the path that you had once traveled and making a a new path, turning away, changing your complete direction of your life. Paul Hill even goes on to say this, that necessarily involves trust and faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, he says you cannot have repentance apart from faith. They are the two sides of the same coin. You can't have true saving faith without repentance. And I want you to know that faith is also implied in Peter's call to baptism. We just saw Kaylee this morning step right up there into that waters of baptism and Dave be able to baptize his daughter. And if y'all could do that without crying, you're better than me because I couldn't. I had to snot around in the background back there. But let me just tell you this. What that was was an outward demonstration of what had occurred in her heart. She was simply acknowledging to her church family, look, I have been bought with a price, the price of Christ's blood. He is now my Savior, and I want to be identified with him publicly. And so she went into the waters of baptism and was raised again. Baptism is not something that we go through the waters and hope that it will save us. The act of baptism itself cannot save us. We, we know that Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, we are saved by grace through faith, and that is a gift of God. It is not of works, lest any man should boast. It is an actual outward appearance, an outward demonstration of what has occurred inside. And so baptism in and of itself, when Peter mentions it here, involves and necessitates faith. And then what I want you to know as a result of that, verse 39, Peter proclaims God's promise that all who repent and trust in Christ will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And listen, that promise was for anyone. It was for everyone. It was from those who are far off. It was for those who were near. It was to as many as the Lord our God will call. Now, here's what I want you to notice as we come to a close this morning. Peter boldly proclaimed the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout his sermon. And that was followed by the convicting power of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of those who heard Peter preach, which was then followed by the call to faith and repentance in Christ accompanied by a public profession of faith through baptism. And then according to verse 40, Peter and presumably the other disciples continued to reason with all who were there. And then Luke tells us the church experienced that exponential growth, an evangelistic explosion. Occurred, and in verse forty-one we read, "Then those who gladly received His word were baptized. In that day, there were three thousand souls who were added to them." You remember, I told you that Pentecost was the other name of the Feast of Weeks from the Old Testament, and the Feast of Weeks was a celebration of, of the harvest, the harvest that had come, and and and. when when the Jews would come to celebrate that feast, they would bring the first fruits of their harvest as an offering to God. Many have said that the day of Pentecost was God's demonstration of the first fruits of the harvest of the church that would come as a result of the preaching of the gospel that Peter stood that day and preached Jesus, and he pointed them to Jesus who had come for their sins. He pointed them to Jesus who had died on the cross. He pointed them to Jesus who had resurrected from the dead. He pointed to Jesus who was at the right hand of the Father interceding for them. He pointed people to Jesus as a result of it. The Holy Spirit came across those people, and the first fruits of the church are right there in Acts chapter 2, and you and I are part of that if we belong to Christ. We too, our story is the same as this we are saved by the same Christ and the same gospel and I have come to you this morning simply with this to preach Jesus to you he is your only hope he is the only hope for mankind we can search the world over to try to find some other thing that will help us we can look far and low right and left, high and low for those things and I want you to know the only hope that you and I have, the only hope that mankind has is Jesus Christ preached, crucified, buried, resurrected, exalted, and coming again. And so my sermon in the sense this morning is this. The day of Pentecost marks the unleashing of the Holy Spirit who empowers believers to testify to the person and the work of Jesus Christ and the salvation he offers to all who will repent and believe in him. I want you to know that the only reason that any of us this morning can have any hope is because the Holy Spirit came into our hearts and convicted us of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. It came because of the result of somebody opening God's word and explaining it to us how Jesus Christ was our only hope. And I want you to know that is what empowers us and encourages us to continue to do the same. Because we trust in a Holy Spirit that will bring conviction. My prayer this morning as I was on my way in has been that God would send his Holy Spirit to bring conviction in the lives of those who are here in this room today. I want it to bring encouragement, but I want him also to bring conviction. Because brothers and sisters, let me just say to you, it does get difficult at times to continue to do what you know God has called you to do. But when you recognize that it is the work of the Holy Spirit and not your own that will ever save anyone, you can continue to be faithful in spite of whatever you see and whatever happens. And so let me say to you, if you are here this morning and you, your testimony is not that you've, you've never come to faith in Christ. You've never trusted in him to be your Lord and Savior. You've never humbled yourself before him. I want you to know on the authority of God's word today that the Bible says that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day for you to fall on your face before him in humility and to confess him as Lord because your sin put Jesus on that cross and he died so that you might be saved. So will you confess him as your Savior and Lord and trust in him to be your Lord and Savior today? The Bible declares that if you refuse to do that, you will suffer in eternity away from God in a place called hell. But today is the day of salvation. May the Lord bless the faithfulness of his people who continue to proclaim his truth. And may we experience a great harvest of souls as we continue to lift the name of the crucified, risen, and exalted Savior. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. And it is for the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for the salvation that you've brought into my own life personally knowing that there was not one single thing that I could have done to earn it or merit it. I thank you that you have saved me from my sins, gifted me with eternal life and the power of the Holy Spirit working through me. I'm grateful, Lord, for being surrounded by so many other brothers and sisters for whom this is their testimony as well. Lord, I do pray for that one and others in this room today, Lord, who do not know you as their Lord and Savior. They've never trusted in you to be there. They're still trusting in other things. My prayer is that your Holy Spirit would bring conviction upon them today. Help them to see that very clearly and that they may come to you through faith and repentance, asking you to be their Savior. Lord, I just thank you for blessing us as you do and continue to walk with us as we leave this place and give us the good news of the gospel to continue to take to this lost and dying world. And this is my prayer in Christ's name. Amen.